0: Well, please turn in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll spend our time looking more closely at verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, Two points for you here. And first point is trust in God's gift of salvation by grace. See, the man who is no longer dead in his sins but has been made alive in Christ so that he may faithfully walk in good works trusts in God's gift of salvation by grace. That's what he does. He trusts in it. He rests in it. So often where you see the word believe in the Scripture, many times it may have been best to translate that word as trust. And certainly for our vernacular, it would be more helpful. It's one thing to believe something in our vernacular. It's another thing to trust in it. To trust in this gift. Really, to trust in the giver of the gift. I wonder how many times you or I, in our evangelistic efforts, have steered someone wrong rather than turning them to trust in the giver of the gift to actually try to initiate meritability for the gift, to encourage conduct or behavior or even words or a prayer to earn the gift or to live in such a way that would merit the gift. But what Paul is calling you and me to do here is to trust in God's gift. And as I said earlier, really to trust in the one who has given the gift. He's given it freely. Paul says here, for by grace, and let's just think about this for a moment, for by grace. I said to you a number of weeks ago, and I've said it since then, I think, that you probably want to spend more time thinking of what grace looks at rather than trying to develop a fine-tuned theological definition of grace. Let the idea that grace is unmerited favor be enough. If you want to search that more deeply, you should, and I encourage that. The more deeply you understand grace, uh, the better you can define it for others, great. But just know that the fact of the matter is unmerited favor, unearned kindness is enough for you to grow by grace. And then from there, once you've kind of rested in that, once you've latched on to that idea, now operate by that. Don't get too wound up on having some seminary definition of grace. Rest in it. Walk in it. Drink from it. Believe that every time you are faithful, every time you're obedient, every time you're compelled, whether internally or externally, but the result is that you honor Christ. Recognize that that's a work of grace and that you should never, ever take credit for that. Do that. And when you're discouraged and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know, I just, I just can't do it anymore, then recognize that God will change your heart and that he will do it by grace. But recognize, too, that doing things by grace is not to not do them. This is the common and major fallacy of the easy believism movement. Let me read to you from Tim Challies. If you haven't purchased his book, Do More Better, I encourage you to, to get it. It's um, as helpful and practical as any book I know on developing a rhythm of spiritual faithfulness. i in a daily quiet time being faithful to the body of Christ, being faithful to Christ himself. Shelley says here in the introduction under a section he calls a productivity catechism, a method, a process by which you're trying to manage your life well, that you're redeeming the time, knowing that the days are evil, that you're committed to the details in such a way that you are effective. He says productivity is not what will bring purpose to your life but what will enable you to excel in living out your existing purpose. So developing productivity, developing faithfulness, really, that's going to help you excel in your existing purpose. And throughout the book, he reminds us that the purpose for which we were created is God's glory. And when we experience good as a result of obeying the Lord, then God is glorified in that He says, again, very practically, he says, I'm going to lead you through a brief productivity catechism, a series of questions and answers. Only when you understand these foundational matters about your God-given purpose and mission will you be ready to get to work. Here is the first question. Now, before I give you the first question, let me tell you another thread that runs through this book, and that is the idea that you were created for good works. Ephesians 2.10. You're created for good works. But you're created to do them by grace. God created you as his workmanship, and he did so with a predestined plan for you to be involved in good works. And the easy believism and the antinomianism of folks like Tullian Chavidian, who most of you have heard of, who speaks about this idea of hyper grace that really you don't do anything, you just let go and let God, which is utterly unbiblical, it does nothing but produce sorrow does nothing but produce a false idea about how sanctification works. You're to be engaged in good works. If not, th- then take all the commands out of the Bible that tell you to do something. By the way, if you've made resolutions for the year, good for you. There's nothing wrong with making resolutions. The One person who said, I'm not making any resolutions this year, but this year I'm going to do these things. That's a resolution. <laughs> That's all a resolution is. I think people have gotten this false idea that a resolution is a bad thing. Why? Well, because you, you you set them on December 31st, and on January 9th, you don't even remember them. That's not good. You don't want to commit to something and not do it, but to make a resolution is simply to say, I will. I made a resolution when I got married. I do. You know, you determine, I'm going to do this. I think Paul is very helpful to us in this regard here. First question Chalice asks here is, ultimately, why did God create you? Really easy to lose focus when life gets difficult. Because a lot of times we might misinterpret why God created us and then other times we might say, I don't even care because I'm committed to what I'm committed to. I want what I want. But the answer to that question, of course, is God created me. He didn't cremate me. God, (laughs) he will if you're not careful. (laughs) We learned that from 2 Peter, didn't we? God created me to bring glory to him. That's why. This is the question every human being wonders at one time or another, isn't it? Why am I here? Why am I here instead of not? here why did god create me the bible has an answer for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever romans 11:36 all things exist to bring glory to god and that includes each one of us that includes you end quote that includes you god created you for his glory and that might sound ethereal or ambiguous meaning you can't grasp it. And it might even sound worse. It might sound like, oh, I don't want that. It might sound like something you don't want to do. No, you won't want to do it if you are not interested in the true Christ of the Bible. If you're interested in the easy believism, antinomianism Jesus of our modern culture, then you will just want the good things he has to offer. But that's not Christianity, and that will lead to devastation and destruction. He goes on, Chalice goes on to say, God created you so he could receive glory from you and receive glory through you. That is an astonishing truth to consider and a deeply humbling one. When you grasp it and apply it, it it transforms everything about your life. The simple fact is you are not the point of your life. You're not the star of your show. If you live for yourself, your own comfort, your own glory, your own fame... You will miss out on your every purpose. God created you to bring glory to him. Second question he asks is, how can you glorify God in your day-to-day life? Answer, I can glorify God in my day-to-day life by doing good works. Question three, what are good works? Answer, good works are deeds done for the glory of God and the benefit of other people. Question four, but you are a sinful person. Can you actually do good works? Answer, yes. Christians are able to do good works because of the finished work of Christ. Question five, in what areas of life should you emphasize good works? Answer, I ought to emphasize good works at all times and in all areas of my life. Question six, what is productivity? Answer, productivity is effectively stewarding my gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God. The idea of productivity, the idea of spiritual faithfulness is that to which the Lord calls you. But as you know, in so many circles, there's no emphasis on that. There's just this idea of accepting some sort of gift, praying some sort of prayer, and then no real effort to encourage stimulation toward honoring God. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's Timely to say it again. That which leads to God's glory is that which is most good for you. Do you know that? You ever feel like, no, I would do that. I know it would glorify God, but it's just not best for my life. Wow, you're you're way off kilter at that point. You need help. You need counsel. You need the body of Christ to come alongside you and bring you back into a, a recalibrated mindset that helps you to understand that God loves you. And his love for you is such that what he has commanded of you and what he has prohibited from you are both best not only for his glory, but for your good. So much of what's going on in our society right now, especially in our country, is not good for those who think they've won substantial victories with the changing of certain laws, getting affirmation from people who are just too weak and too scared to tell them the truth. We've got to be strong. We've got to be gracious and tell them the truth. It's not up to the government to help those folks. It's up to us. This really stems from this idea that for by grace you've been saved through faith. So what we're talking about here is doing good works, by grace because you've been saved by grace but what is the vehicle what's the uh, the method so to speak the earthly human element it's faith you know from scripture that god grants faith but you also actuate faith if you've been granted faith then you love to actuate that faith. If you've been illumined, if you've been given a new heart, a heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone, you're thankful. You voraciously go after the Word of God because you know that that's what's going to produce growth. You love it. It not only tastes good, but it has long-term impact on your life. And so you do that by grace. You exercise faith because you've been granted faith. The faith that you've been granted is faith in the gospel. You've even been granted repentance. You couldn't conjure that up when you were dead, right? Back to the earlier part of the passage that I read to you from Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, the person who never gets over this issue never really grows. Do you know that? You know, the person who can talk a good talk, he loves to talk theology. By the way, ladies, let me talk to you for a minute, those of you who aren't married. If you're considering someone who's interested in pursuing you and he talks a good talk, but he's not devoted to good works in the body of Christ, he's just playing a good game. He might be really nice. He might have great manners. And he might even know a lot of theology. But if he's not interested in good works, a devotion to the body of Christ, it's a black and white issue. Game's over. Move on. Is that clear? I hope so. Because I've seen, oh, I have seen so many people in my lifetime marry the wrong person. I've seen so many people in my lifetime subject themselves to the wrong person because of a willingness to think that they can change them. Just look for this. Look for this. Ladies, men, look for the potential spouse who operates by grace through faith. Because he's been granted salvation by grace through faith. He understands that that's how it works. He understands he played no role. He understands he was dead. He doesn't play this game that says, ah, eh, total depravity, I'm not sure about all that. What? How can you not see the reality of total depravity? It doesn't take much to read the scripture. You get to Genesis 3 and you're there if you're paying attention. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Again, faith is the vehicle. God grants you faith. You exercise that faith. You look back on that, especially when you're new in the faith, and you say, I believed. As you grow older and God takes you through a series of sanctifying events in your life, you say, I believed because he caused me to believe. And I believe today because I want to believe he caused me to believe. He granted me belief. But now I love to believe. And when I disbelieve, I say, Lord, help my unbelief. And I go to other people who are willing to honestly say, help my unbelief. People who might appear to totally have everything together spiritually, but are honest enough to say, you know what? I fail too. And I need your help. We're talking about discipleship. Again, ladies, men, don't play this game with a person who's not committed to discipleship. If he's not committed to discipleship now, why in the world do you think he ever would be? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Own this. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. If it wasn't clear that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and it's not your own doing, now Paul says it. It's not your own doing. So don't rest. Don't trust in your own doing that led to your salvation because it didn't. Why? Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, but it's the gift of God. Paul just, with an amazing economy of words, repeatedly, in different ways, goes back to salvation by grace through faith. As John Calvin said, salvation is of the Lord. That's what we mean when we talk about Reformed theology. Salvation is of the Lord. The person who trusts in God's gift of salvation by grace recognizes it is a gift of God. It's not my own doing. And then verse 9, Paul says it a different way. It's not a result of works. So often we think it is. Uh, why? So that no one may boast. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who boasts boast in his works, right? No. Because that would contradict what he's saying here. He says let him who boasts boast in the Lord. You know that's good to boast? It's good to boast in the Lord? That's evangelism. It's also edification. It's also exaltation. To boast in the Lord, to, to tell God what He has done, to tell others what God has done. Let me paint a scenario for you, and you tell me how this might go, or actually, don't tell me, you just tell yourself how this might go if someone accused you of not being a believer. How do you respond? What do you do? Many times, the inclination is to immediately boast in what? You, your lifestyle, your character. Your activities, your church involvement, your kindness to people who are unkind to you, things like that. That's how you should know I'm a Christian. When someone communicates that they think you're not in Christ, which is kind of an extreme expression of disagreement with regard to whatever the issue may be, that's the time to go back to boasting in the Lord. And I think a great response to that would be, you know what? Thank you for your concern for me. That's a devastating thing to hear. Uh, my hope is to boast in the Lord. Help me do that. You, can you tell me why you think my life doesn't reflect the character of God? Tell me more, because this is disturbing. That, that would be the right response, no matter who says that to you. I've told this story a number of times. Uh, and I was in Walmart one time, and um, I was in the, whatever, shampoo section, I guess, and these four ladies all four kind of headed for the same bottle. I can see it in slow motion even right now. Um, and the, you know, the one kind of got it, and then the other swooped in. It was like an NFL highlight reel. And um, wow, I thought they were going to throw down right there, and they talked like they were going to. And, the, the, you know, the fight ensued. and I mean, they were really angry with each other and throwing all these comments back and forth. But the two comments I remember was, Lady, you need Jesus. Like, that's some that's some on the spot evangelism going on right there. <laughs> I don't think so. And you know, to which the other lady responded, We already got him. You're the one that needs Jesus. You know, using Jesus as a as a whipping tool to discourage and, and really to attack someone because they don't measure up. And for you and me. We ought to be willing to respond to a situation like that by saying, you know what, you're right, I'm not acting like I know Jesus because I just stole your shampoo. And you've done things like that, maybe not exactly that, but you've shown yourself to appear not to be a Christian even though you are. And the better thing to do would be to say thank you for pointing that out. I needed a rebuke. This idea of salvation by grace is that it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And oftentimes, in the most difficult of moments, we find ourselves willing to boast rather than to receive the correction, to receive the rebuke. It's a great time for evangelism. Um, About a year ago, I was looking on a Facebook page of a friend of mine from high school. I hadn't spoken to him in 30-plus years and I began to read comments from this girl that he and I had gone to high school with. And he, and he did one of those things that a lot of people do on Facebook. He said, uh, okay, one word uh, that describes high school, go. And, um, you know, you see all these various different comments. And this, this one gal that I remember, I didn't know her real well in high school, but I had interaction with her on a daily basis. We are in band together, and she said, band hell. You say, that's two words. Well, she hyphenated it, so it was one word, <laughs> technically. Band hell. And then she went on to describe it. And she went on to describe this person that was in band with her, that made her life miserable. And the more I read, the more I began to realize she was talking about me. And it was devastating. And I actually remember a time when she first friended me on Facebook, which was a long time ago. And I sent her a text, and I, I thought, you know, I really need to... I don't remember anything that I ever did to her. I just remember that I was never really very kind to her. I played the snare. I was the first chair drummer. Played the trap set, the jazz band. Bless her heart, she played the bass drum. And I remember one year in marching band... Eddie Krishbaum, who was the, the snare drummer that I played next to all those years, he said, did you see what happened to this gal? And I said, no. He said, well, she got a ride with Santa Claus. I said, what are you talking about? It's Christmas parade. She had stepped into a hole and fallen on the bass drum and it b- busted her lip so that she, it was bleeding horribly and evidently Santa Claus was driving a, golf cart in the parade found out about it came back and took her to the first date and so that was kind of the the deal we were talking about was that she got to have a ride with Santa Claus during the Christmas parade and that along with a number of other things that that happened just led to a difficult life for her and I talked to Kimberly about this I I read the comments to her and I said I I don't know quite what to do about this but I know that I need to do something And so I sent her a private message, and I even said in that private message, you know, if it would be more suitable in your mind, I'd I'd be more than happy because you've said these things publicly. I would be more than happy to post these things publicly. But what I want you to know is that, that I'm a miserable wretch. And by God's grace, he saved me from my sinful condition. I was not only a horrible person then, I've been a horrible person since then. I don't remember anything I ever said to you that was unkind. I don't remember anything that I might have ever done that was unfeeling or insincere. Uh, but I'm pretty sure you were talking about me, even though you didn't say my name in those posts. I spent five hours writing this. So by the time the morning rolled around, I had read it to my wife. I, I felt right about sending it to her. And I, I got a response within a few hours, and, um, and she was very grateful. And I don't know what the Lord has done in her life since then, but I know that the Lord threw me a pass that I chose to catch. It would have been real easy to unfriend that friend on whose Facebook page I saw those comments. It would have been real easy to retaliate. It would have been real easy to say, oh, yeah, but what about you doing this? But I saw this as the perfect opportunity to speak truth and to simply boast in the Lord. And that's all we have you know, you went to high school with some friends who've got bad memories of you. You might work with someone today who's got bad memories of you. And the absolute worst thing you can do is boast in what you think is a spotless pattern of Christ-honoring life. Far better to boast in the Lord. Look for those opportunities. This was a great opportunity for me. She even said to me, you know, I... I I don't live near you, but if I did, I think I would go to your church. But I know that I I was able to say to her, thank you for your grace in receiving my apology, in willingly receiving my plea to you for forgiveness for my conduct in 1981, which was obviously very hurtful to you. Well, we are to trust in God's gift of salvation by grace so that we wouldn't boast. And there's so much more we could say about this. But I think we're at the place where it's time to move on to point number two. And point number two really rests in point number one. If we are to trust in God's gift of salvation by grace, we must walk in God's preordained good works. Why? those good works are preordained. That's why. You say, isn't that kind of a robotic kind of thing? And that's often the accusation against Reformed theology, against Calvinistic thinking or living. Oh, well, God decided it all. Remember this, and I think this will help. You might want to write this down. I've said it before, but I think this will help you. To know how best to think about this, to rest in God's grace, to operate by God's grace, to to do good works by God's grace, and to know how to help others who are looking at this going, I don't get this. Does it make any sense to me? God's in charge. He determines it all. Well, Paul in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 2 says yes. But here's the little phrase that I think will help, and that is God not only ordained the outcome, he ordained the means. You see that? What are the means? The means are good works. The initial means is faith, belief. You say, well, I thought I was doing that. You are, because God ordained it. You say, well, then how does that glorify him? Because he gives you latitude once he's granted you faith, once he's granted you belief. He gives you latitude to determine the degree to which you will exercise that faith. We're to exercise that faith by walking in good works. This term "walk" it's the right word. In developing this points this morning, and I've done this before. Anytime I come across the word "walk," I'm always looking for another word that would be more practical, more helpful, more suitable for you, so that throughout the week you're thinking about what this looks like in your life. And the only other word that I could come up with is not a verb, and that's routine. But the the idea of walking is right. You walk a lot. You walk every day. I don't mean that you walk a lot every day. I just mean that throughout your life, you walk a lot. You walk every single day, and that's a lot. So Paul uses this word to speak of the day-to-day reality of that which you do. And as I said, really what Paul is saying here is that the man who was dead in his trespasses and sins but was made alive does walk how does he walk? He walks in good works. Maybe you, before you were a Christian, knew someone with whom you were good friends. Maybe it was your spouse. Your spouse or your good friend came to know Christ and was suddenly not only interested in, but kind of driven by serving in the body of Christ. And you're looking at, at that going, this seems like an obsession. This is just a little over the top. And then God saved you, and you thought, I've got one life to do something eternal. I've got one life to invest in heaven. The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. You need this book. I want to encourage every single one of you to go on Amazon today and buy this book. We're going to be doing a study in biblical finances in the next few months. Randy Alcorn speaks in this book of the reality that what you invest in today determines where your heart is. Really, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The person who comes to know Christ doesn't get involved in the church and say, man, these people are a little fanatic. He says, how can I be like that? And when he grows dry and he grows concerned, he says, Lord, change me. I remember a time when I would see people singing in the worship service and think, I don't know why they are so excited to sing. And now I'm excited to sing. That took growth. I wanted to sing, but I just couldn't kind of get into it. But in time, as I recognized the greatness of who Christ is, and I realized that my salvation was not by works, not by my own doing, but a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. I became thankful, and then I really wanted to worship him. That's true of so many of you as well. Well, if we're to walk in God's preordained good works, it will be because, verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. You can say it this way. We are his craft. We are his product. And Paul's not speaking... Only, in fact, he's certainly not speaking primarily about the idea that he created you. He's talking about what happened when he saved you. You now are his workmanship. You're not only created initially in the image of God, you are growing into the image of his son because you know his son. He's caused you to know him. He knows you, you know him. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works. Not just a great attitude. Not just Christ-like thinking that's devoid of any good works. James tells us, faith without works is dead. It's not Christian faith. Now, Roman Catholicism twists that into the idea that you somehow, by your good works, not only came to faith but maintain your faith. If you don't know that, the Council of Trent in the 1500s established with plain certainty that he who says that salvation is by grace through faith alone is anathema. He's accursed. The passage we're looking at today says exact opposite. That's where we most differ from Roman Catholic theology, if you ever wonder about that. It's important to understand that. So he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. This is predestination. This is a predetermined plan beforehand, not only before you're born, but before the foundations of the earth. Paul has used that terminology in this book. Why? That we should walk in them. There you go that you would walk in these good works. So we've looked really at a basic theology of how you are saved and that for which you are saved. You are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now here's where folks can sometimes get off kilter. And really get off the rails. They do good works not by grace. They do good works expecting to call attention to their good works and expecting to be applauded for their good works. That's the motive. And the person who doesn't know this about himself or herself should question, this is a clue, this is a very important clue, he or she should question... If this is true about a person, that he or she does a lot of good works with the wrong motive, and she or he doesn't know that about herself or himself, then what she or he should do is ask the question Am I happy? Do I have joy? Do I do these things with real joy? Do I do them for Christ's glory? Do I do them because I love Christ and I love the body of Christ? By the way, you need help with this. You can't do this alone. You can't do that self-assessment all by yourself. You need others to come alongside you. And I, I would ask, if I were you, if you're concerned, if you're wondering if you're in this category, then you should go to, ladies, you should go to other women, men, you should go to other men and say, you know, do I appear to have the joy of Christ? How about this? Am I helpful to others to have the joy of Christ or am I just helpful in you know, making sure that the dishes are washed that's good but it's not by grace if you're just doing the work it's by works it's works by works and not works by grace here's some application points and I got 10 of them Ten things that you should do. I can tell you you should do them because the Bible commands you to do them. Ten things that you should do that will help you to engage in good works by grace. That you would have the joy of Christ. That you would be godly. Really, that you would be faithful in good works. Glorifying God and experiencing the good that God has for you. Ten things you can do, and I may think of some more as we go. Number one, pray according to God's Word. Pray according to God's Word. How's that? What does that mean? Well, unceasingly, how am I going to do that? Get started. Try. And when you don't, when you don't succeed in praying unceasingly, just remember that you have to sleep you do need to focus on other things. But here's a practical tool. I use it all the time. I pray when I'm talking to you. Most all the time. Most all the time. If I'm having a conversation with you, whether it's over the phone or in person, whatever it is, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for me, I'm pleading with God to give me grace and empathy for you, compassion, That God would glorify himself through you, through me, through our interaction? See, that helps you double dip. That helps you multitask to pray while you're doing other things. Because some people would say, well, I can't be praying while I'm driving. I hope you do. Especially some of you, right? Thankfully, praying thankfully. You know, I've tried to get into this routine, and I've failed most of the time, to be honest. I've tried to get into this routine where the first thing I do in the morning is thank God. You remember that study we did in the psalm some time ago where I encourage you to wake up every morning and say praise the Lord and mean it. Hallelujah. Start your day with hallelujah. How about start your day with praying with thanksgiving? That's the cure for anxiety. That's the cure for anxiety. According to God, not according to modern psychiatry, but the cure for anxiety is, according to God, Praying with thanksgiving, Philippians 4. Here's a way to pray according to God's word pray according to God's will. Ask for your desires. God wants you to do that. And then say and mean it, nevertheless, not my will yours be done. Because there will be times where you just don't know. I'd encourage you not to look for writing on the wall, to ask God to tell you what to do. I'd encourage you instead to ask God to help you be faithful and then do what you want. And if you're looking for God to put a roadblock in your way when you're not sure what to do, that's not bad. That's a good thing to do. You know, Lord, I don't think I have the discernment or the wisdom or the strength or the maturity or the courage to make right decisions about this situation. Give me good counsel through godly people. Help me to understand things from your word. But put a stop to it if this is not best for my life and for your glory. Just bring it to a screeching halt. Now, don't do that and keep running full steam ahead. Because if you're asking God to do that, you're probably pretty uncertain about what you should be doing. Move cautiously. But plead with God to help you pray according to his will. Pray also, I'm still on number one in the application points, by the way. Pray according to God's word. Pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel as Paul did in Ephesians 6. That's what Paul asked for prayer for. Paul didn't ask, you know, that you'd pray for him that he'd get over this cold or whatever else. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But when you see the record of Paul's prayer requests, it was boldness, Ephesians 6, to proclaim the gospel. And clearly, God answered that prayer. So pray according to God's word. Number two, under application, receive God's word according to God's word. 2 Timothy 2.13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Why do some people grow spiritually? Some people. Because they receive the Word of God, they do it in affliction, and the result is that the Word of God does its work in believers. It doesn't do its work in unbelievers, so that's painfully obvious when a person is you know, living or operating, functioning amongst believers and he himself is not a believer. John says in 1 John 3.10 that it's obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You know, the tares among the wheat, they're not engaged in good works. Certainly not with the right attitude. The person who receives God's word according to God's word, he receives it as the word of God, not as the word of men. He doesn't receive it as suggestions, so it does its work. Application number three, read God's word. And I would, uh, as a Subpoint on this, encourage you to read other books that help you love God's Word. You must be in God's Word. You must be in God's Word regularly. Go to our website, to our weekly devotional guide, and find one of those reading plans. I'm going to send you an email probably today that will give you some other helps to get involved in regularly reading God's Word, reading it being changed by the simple reading of God's Word. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments, my Bible. But before that, he said, bring the books. You need good books. Whether they're electronic or hard copy, you need good books. Paul needed good books. You need the right books. You need good books. We have a resource guide on our website that gives you a substantial list of good books in particular categories. You want a good book on theology. You want a good book on sanctification. You want a good book on sexual immorality. They're there on our website. You should look at them. Number four. Application number four. Meditate on God's Word. I love how... um, We read these words in Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Moses' counsel to Joshua. You Want to be a successful leader, Joshua? Meditate on God's Word. Then you'll be able to do what's in God's Word. You know, some of you might sometimes say, Gosh, you know, I know what God's Word says, but I just can't can't seem to obey. I just have this pattern of sin. I keep going back to it. Meditate on God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Point number five, memorize God's Word. That's why we have a memory passage every week as a church asking you to memorize that together. Usually it's at the heart of the passage we're looking at together on Sunday morning. Psalm one nineteen eleven. David says, "I've stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you." Do you hate your sin? Are you perplexed, really devastated by your sin? Sure, you are. Of course, you are. If you're in Christ, you hate your sin. And David says, "I I stored up in my heart so that I can remember it." That's what Jesus did. Matthew four. Not only quoted, but he rested in the Word of God to resist temptation. Number six, study God's Word. Acts 17.11, the Bereans, more noble than the Thessalonians, right? The Thessalonians who, in affliction, received the Word of God as the Word of God, not the Word of men, and it did its work in them. The Bereans were more noble than them. Here in Acts 17.11, it says, Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So many good helps. One of my favorite is Precept Austin. It's free. All these commentaries, all these helps. You need sound preaching, but you need Bible reading, and you need Bible study. Well, seven, seven, sing God's Word. Psalm 34.3 says, "O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We quote this passage a lot. Brad does. I do. Colossians 3.16. We're to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what our music team does Music is the vehicle, that particular vehicle of worship. The whole worship service is worship. Even the announcements are worship. But the music time is a time intended to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we're teaching one another, right? So you're teaching me. I'm teaching you as we sing God's word together. Serve, number eight, serve according to God's word. You have 3 subpoints here on number eight. The first is serve God. Romans 12, 1-2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Serving God with a heart of worship. Serving God not conformed to the pattern of this world. Stop for a minute. Think about this. What are the influences in your life right now That could, and probably are, leading to you being conformed to the patterns of this world. They're everywhere. I remember in the 90s, I was teaching my youth group from this passage, and and I pointed out the billboards. Back then it was just billboards. Now it comes in your pocket, on your phone. What are you doing to establish a parameter that would encourage you rather than discourage you from worshiping God, serving God with your heart. Next subpoint: serve believers. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Say, I, I like going to church every now and then, but I don't really want to get to know people. Let me just tell you, with much grace and gratitude for the fact that you're here this morning, that's not Christianity. That's something else. It's not Christianity. And you should be concerned by that. You should be concerned that you only want to be taught, but you don't want to learn. You don't want to grow. You don't want to fellowship with others. You don't want to serve others. You have, as we said earlier, one opportunity to give your life to the body of Christ. To serve sacrificially, joyously, thankfully. It's a privilege. You're storing up treasure in heaven. Did you know that when you do that? Every time you do something for someone in the body, you're passing your treasure forward into heaven rather than storing it up here where you can't take it. You're storing it up where you'll have it forever rather than storing it up here. Our church is known by that. When people come to our church, I, I hear that frequently. Just can't believe the way everybody serves. Third sub point under number eight serve unbelievers. Pray for them, of course. Be a peacemaker. You know, not a person that gets angry with someone for stealing your shampoo at Walmart. But be a peacemaker. You know, be the one who's willing to say, you know what? I think that shampoo would look great on you. Why don't you take it? Or however that might go and whatever difficult experience you're having with an unbeliever. Pray for them. According to 1 Peter 4.12, have this attitude. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How dare you treat me like this? I remember one guy saying frequently, you know, you're king's kids, and so you deserve better. No, you don't. You will get Better in heaven because you are a child of the king. But what you and I deserve is eternal torment. And the opportunity to be persecuted in this lifetime is one that would lead to the salvation of the one who persecutes you. We're to have that attitude. Well, number nine, give according to God's word. Give according to God's word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The Macedonians who were poor, they were poverty stricken and living with affliction, thought that as a result of their poverty that they were disqualified from giving. And so they pleaded to be able to give. Can we give? And the result was that God prospered them spiritually and spiritually. Financially. It resulted not only in their thanksgiving, but the thanksgiving of those who looked on. Second Corinthians 9 6, Paul says the point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, this is a secondary benefit. This is not a you know investment program. But it is an investment, and it certainly does result in the secondary benefits of God working things out in your life financially. But the person who's not committed to 2 Corinthians 9-like giving that probably starts with 10%, doesn't look toward it, you know, as a legalistic measure, that's the person that God blesses. Well, number 10, encourage according to God's word. Encourage, and this could include admonishment, instruction, instruction rebuke, you know, back to second Timothy 3:16 and 17 we looked at. Be an encourager. You know, if you are the person who comes to be with the body of Christ and is just always looking for encouragement. I need somebody today to help me stop being sad. That's okay. But give it 6 to 12 months in a church like this you will if you're receiving that with grace you will become the person who looks for that person who walks into the body of Christ looking for encouragement don't don't let yourself get into a a lifelong rhythm of being the one who's always looking to be encouraged if that's where you are now It is what it is, and embrace it. And recognize that if we were to criticize you for that, then we would not be gracious ourselves. But realize also that God is using this period of time in your life where you are discouraged to make you an encourager. And how does that happen? You receive instruction. You look for it. Here's a great test. Run yourself through this test. The last time someone rebuked you, corrected you. What did you do with it? You say, well, I thought about it. Did you go back to that person? I find this to be highly unusual, highly unusual when a correction or rebuke is given, that the person who receives that would go back. I've made this the pattern of my life. I think it is the natural pattern of every Christian, or should be, that when we receive instruction, we go back to the person who gave it to us. We receive a rebuke. We hear a concern. We go back a week or two weeks or a month later, and we say, hey, thank you so much you know, for pointing that out. Um, I've been thinking through that, and I've been trying to make that change. Uh, will, will you help me think through this some more? It's, it's a hard-hearted response on your part if you receive an instruction and you never go back to that person you're pretending, you're acting like you received it, and you really didn't. But that's the pattern by which you become an actual encourager. By the way, the person who is biblically, in a spirit-filled way, an actual encourager is one who says things that matter. He doesn't say things like, well, hang in there, see you next Sunday, have a great week. And leave it at that. Nothing wrong with saying those things. Those are fine. But he's willing to ask questions like, you know, tell me about your giving. Tell, tell me about your faithfulness to your spiritual gifts. Tell me about your relationship with your spouse. Tell me about your relationship with your coworkers. You know, how do you treat them? How, how do you respond when they treat you poorly? That's the person who becomes the encourager. Listen to this, Romans 15, 4. We were in this text a few weeks ago. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Are you hopeless today? Have you bordered on giving up? Have you found yourself to be without hope? Your hope is in endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. You say, I can't endure. Then surround yourself with people who endure. Receive correction from them. Become the person who gives correction to those who are not able to endure. You need the body. The body needs you. Become that encourager. Encourage according to God's word. Well, number 11, I told you there were 10. (laughs) Math's never been my thing. Uh, Number 11, simplify your life according to God's word. Simplify your life. This is really important. Embrace the prohibitions of Scripture. And we might call them, grammatically speaking, negative commands. Don't do these things. Minimize your life. Go through your life and ask the question, what do I have that's dead weight? You remember from Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. What's the implication there? If there are weights in your life that are not necessarily sin, but they are weights, and they are holding you back. You may have some personal obsession with some secular issue that's not sinful in and of itself, but it is preventing you from maximizing your productivity for Christ and his body. What is it? Lay it aside, he says. He all talks about sin which clings so closely. A lot of folks call this the, that besetting sin. And then he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Practically speaking, based on number 11 here, are you a good manager or steward of your resources, your money, your time, your giftedness, your body? What are you doing to ensure That when you exercise your giftedness for the body of Christ, that you can do it with the best energy, the best mindset, the best help for the body. Are you a good manager, a good steward of that which God owns? You don't own any of it. You're a manager of it. Your resources, your money, your time, your giftedness, your body. How about this? Are you giving of your first fruits regularly without making excuses? Giving joyfully, sacrificially, by grace rather than by guilt. You know, um, a lot of people feel like every time giving is mentioned, which we've hardly mentioned it in five and a half years. But a lot of times, people feel like any time it's mentioned that it's intended to bring guilt, and it's not. If it's in the Bible, especially with regard to the fact that it is a matter of experiencing God's blessing, it needs to be addressed. Last sub point on number eleven. Are you faithfully engaged in the practice of repentance? Do you look closely and carefully and honestly and diligently at your sin, especially when someone brings it to your attention, but even if they don't? Are you willing to do an assessment of your own life? Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He won't. He won't, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I think the greatest text in the scripture on repentance is 2 Corinthians 7. The sorrow, the grief that leads to salvation. It's a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow. A sorrow that says, gosh, I wish I hadn't done this because look what happened. That's worldly sorrow. But a sorrow that says, I de-glorified God. I stole God's glory with that attitude, with that conduct. A lot of application here, I know. We don't usually spend that much time on dealing with the nuts and bolts of what to do. But in an effort to help you establish a trajectory in your life in 2017 and beyond... My hope is that this passage will lead you to be a faithful Bible reader, a singer of God's word, a server of God's people. That you would rest in God's work with a routine of your work. That everything you do would be driven by what God has done. The life of one saved by grace through faith is a visible pattern of predetermined good works. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him to help us to be a people that does that. Father, thank you for your great kindness. Thank you that you've called us to works, but also, Father, for those in Christ, we thank you that you have predestined good works in us. And Father, we ask that you would help us to do those good works by grace through faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.